So we want to take just a minute. We want to kind of set the stage with respect to the story that Luke is giving to us. Now, it doesn't say it in the text, but many commentators feel like and are fairly certain that well, that the day that this would have taken place on was probably the Sabbath. So there would have been some teaching involved. They would have gone to the synagogue, and Jesus there would have taught. And it was uh, it was custom to invite people over to your home, especially the rabbi who had taught. Um, he would have been invited over to someone's home for that afternoon meal. And so a lot of commentators believe that that's probably the scenario. That's probably what is going on is this Pharisee, um, verse 36 tells us, had invi- invited Jesus to have dinner with him. And so Jesus takes the invitation. He goes to the Pharisee's house, and there they recline at the table together. It's the, it was the common practice of the day. They didn't sit in chairs like you and I do. They would, I'm losing my notes all over the place up here. Let's see if we can nail them down. All right. The common practice was they would have a, 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 a series of low couches almost. And those would have been kind of seated in almost a, uh, an, an oblong uh, semicircle to some degree, and, and you would have rested, kind of reclined there, leaning on your elbow with your feet going away from the table, with your hand, your right hand, uh, available to pull from the various dishes as if they would have been passed in front of you. And so that's the scene. Jesus is there. They're gathered around. They're having their meal. Could have been indoors. Uh, Jewish folks like to eat outdoors in the courtyard. It could have been out in the courtyard. But either way, it was at this Pharisee's home, and they were all there, and they were eating. And in the course of a meal, this woman shows up. Now, if you look at the text, she was known, verse 37, a woman in that town who lived a sinful life. Okay? Generally understood, she was involved in, um, in not good lifestyle. And uh, she comes to the meal. She comes to this Pharisee's house. And she is there at Jesus' feet. So, She knows perhaps she was in the service that morning. Perhaps she had been to the synagogue and she had heard Jesus teach and her heart had been moved. But whatever it was, she makes her way there. She makes her way to Jesus' feet and she begins to cry at his feet, crying so much that that she lets her hair down, which in that culture at that time was just a real social no-no. She lets her hair down and she gets down and she begins to wipe Jesus' feet with her hair. Quite a scene, if you think about it. Really a spectacle um, in, in more ways than one. And all of this is going on. And then we see, as she wiped her feet, his feet with her hair, she was kissing his feet. And then she took this perfume that she had And she anointed his feet with perfume. Now, all of that is happening in Simon the Pharisee's home. And Luke tells us what his response was. You see it in verse 39. When the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, that is, he thought it. 
he thought to himself, if this man were really a prophet, some translations have the prophet, if this man were the prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. You'll notice in verse 40, Jesus answered him. That is, Jesus knew what Simon was thinking, and so he addressed Simon's concerns in a very short parable. And so we have the, we have the parable. He says, Simon, I've ha- I have something to tell you. And Simon responds, tell me, teacher. He's ready to learn. He's always the student, always the good student. He's a Pharisee. Tell me what it is that you would have for me, teacher. And then verse 41, we get the parable. Two people, two men, they, owned, they owed money to a certain money lender. One of them owed 500 denarii, the other 50 denarii. You'll remember from other parables that we've looked at through this series that a denarii was basically equal to a day's wages. So 500 denarii, roughly speaking, about a year and a half's worth of wages. The 50 denarii, basically about two months' worth. These two men owed debts. And then you'll notice the size of one of them, quite large, the other one, not as large. But the thing that binds those two together is this. Neither of them could pay the debt. And so the money lender forgave the debt. And then he asked Simon a question, which one of these individuals would love more? And Simon replies, the one who had the bigger debt, obviously, Jesus says, you've judged correctly. And then he turns to this woman and he tells her, and with Simon, is he, he's addressing this to Simon. Do you see her? Of course he saw her. She came into this house. She gave me, you didn't do, you didn't offer me anything. You didn't give me water for my feet. You didn't kiss me. You, you, you performed none of the social customs for me as your guest. But look at the way that she has treated me. Wow. Right to the core of what was going on in Simon's heart. Simon is concerned. All of the scene, the the entire picture, everybody who would have been there, their attention is focused on one person. The woman. That woman from town, and we all know who she is. That's where all of the attention would have been directed. And Jesus takes the attention and he turns it squarely on the individual at the table. Are you ready? Who had it all together. And that's where Jesus puts the limelight. Now let's talk about it. Four things I want you to see. The first one is this. The characters we all are. The characters that we all are. This story, like so many of Jesus' stories, is really a glimpse into um, who we are as people. And so many times Jesus takes us and he breaks us into these two groups. And the two groups that that are broken down here, the first is this known sinful lady of the town, and the second is the righteous Pharisee. Two distinctly different groups of people. Two different classes of individuals. And yet, both of them are the same. If you think back 
For Luke chapter 15, when Jesus told the parable of the prodigal son, we saw the same scenario unfold there. The two characters appeared in that parable. Remember who they were? They were the son that went off and squandered his father's inheritance on women and wild living. The second character that appears in that story is the other brother, the older brother who stayed home, the good son. The good son who stayed home. And you remember that Jesus wasn't really shining the light on the prodigal son so much as he was on the son who stayed back at the house. And so here again in this parable, Jesus is doing the exact same thing. He's using the real life situation with two individuals and he calls into this parable and he begins to tell their story. And guess what? You and I are right here. The truth is, you and I fall into one of those two characters. We, we will generally assume one or the other of those because there aren't many other options. And so the question is, what kind of character are you? What kind of character are you? Are you living in open rebellion to God? Living by your own rules? Women and wine? Men and money? Off blowing your inheritance in a faraway land? It may not look like that. But are you, are you autonomous? Are you living the way you want to live? By your own rules? Or are you living like the older brother, the Pharisee in the story before us? You see his heart in verse 39 as he looks at the woman and what she's doing to Jesus. What is he? He's smug. He's self-righteous. He's, he's religious. He's very religious. He has it all together. Everything's right. Every I is dotted. Every T is crossed. That's what Pharisees were known for, was good, wholesome, religious living. And so Jesus now has two individuals in this situation, and he's highlighting both of them. And you and I can look at it, and, and either we will fall into one of those two categories most definitely. If you're a Christian, two, you will tend towards one of these two lifestyles. You will fall into one of these two categories. In the theological world, we have big theological names for them. Here's the first one. All you note takers, ready? Antinomianism. All right? Write that one down. And it simply means against the law. Antinomian, against the law. And so we have the, that's the theological name for folks who, who look at God's grace and say, I just do it however I want to do it. God's grace will abound in my life the more I sin. I have complete freedom. Why? I've been justified in Christ. And so we skew into that ditch. And sometimes in our own lives we find ourselves doing that. And so we're over here in that ditch, that lawless ditch. But then there's the other side. And the other side is the legalistic side. And sometimes we'll find ourselves in that ditch. And when we're in that ditch, we're doing really good. And everything's really going hunky-dory in our lives. And we've got it all together. And and every I is dotted and T is crossed. 
and things look really good and we're having our quiet times and we've been in worship for weeks and weeks and we've actually made a home fellowship group and Sunday school in the same week. And all of those things are happening. And so we think because of that, there is great approval of us. That God approves of us because of what it is that we've done. And so we will find ourselves in one of those two ditches almost all the time. The the challenge in the Christian life is to keep it in the center. Remembering the gospel that Christ has died for you, paid the penalty for your sin, and that you are righteous in Him, and that God receives you because of that. And because of that wonderful gift of salvation, the longing of your heart is to live for your heavenly Father. So let me ask you, which one of those characters are you? Where's your struggle? Have you identified it? Can you put your finger on it? Are you, are you more like the, the woman doing it your way? Or are you more like the Pharisee? You've got it all together. And you're looking for God's approval because of everything you've done. Here's the second thing I want you to see, and that is the debt that we all owe. You'll notice in the parable that both men owe a debt. 500 denarii, 50 denarii. But the common thing, and I've already highlighted, is this, that while there's great disparity in the debt amount and what the situation was, it is the same. Neither man can repay his debt. They each have a debt on their back that they can never rid themselves up. And they would both love to be out from under that debt, but neither of them have the means to do so. Some of you know that I love to backpack. Um, I love everything about it. You, the kind of backpacking that I like is, uh, is not the day, it's not drive your car up, get out and throw your tent five feet away from there and lay there on a hard ground for the night and then get up and drive home. I like the kind where you take your backpack, you pack it full of everything that you need for the next four or five days, you drive to the location, you get out of your car, and then you hike 10, 20, 30, 40 miles out into the wilderness, and you live for four or five days. We have a saying as backpackers. It's not the pack on your back that will kill you. It's the grain of sand in your shoe. It's not the... It's not the heavy pack that will kill you. It's the grain of sand in your shoe. Listen, in this parable, the 50 denarii, the 500 denarii, either of them, both of them will crush you. They are debts you cannot repay. They are debts that you owe that you can never in your life repay. You You may think it's a grain of sand. It will kill you. It will wear you out as you drag it around. You may think you're here this morning, you've got a 50-pound pack. There's nothing that the Savior can do for you. And that's simply just not the case. No matter the size of the debt, you can enter the presence of God only if that debt is dealt with. And just so happens that the Bible tells us that Jesus came to pay the penalty for your sin. John MacArthur says it this way. He says, imagine that you lived your entire life perfectly, 
all the way through. And then nearing the end of your life, you committed one single sin. And then you died. John MacArthur says that one single sin would be enough to separate you from the God who created you for all eternity. I don't know about you. I don't think any of us in this room can, are familiar with that scenario. But you can understand the sentiment. We all have a debt. Your debt, my debt. Debt is the great equalizer. This woman's debt and the Pharisee's debt, which Jesus is highlighting, both of them would keep them from the presence of God. Now here's the key. As you think about your debt. Your debt and your understanding of your debt is the first great key to gospel living. If you don't know it, if you don't get it, if you don't regularly ponder it, then gospel living is going to be very difficult for you. Because the gospel is the good news that Jesus came to do something about your bad news. The gospel is the good news that Jesus came to do something about your bad news. That's the gospel. Now, here's the seeming paradox in Christianity. Are you ready? The seeming paradox in Christianity is that as you and I grow in our, as you and I grow in our Christianity, as we grow in our sanctification, as we grow more and more like Christ, the paradox is, that we understand we're really less and less like Him than we need to be. Do you see that? The closer you get to the light, the more your heart is illumined. John Bunyan talked about it in Pilgrim's Progress, and he talked about it as a house. And that in the house, certain rooms had been cleaned, but others had not yet been cleaned. And so as you open those doors, the dust would kick up all around, a closet here, a bedroom there, a, a, a living room here. And, and as those rooms were opened up, the dust would kick up. And, of course, that was a picture for Bunyan. What he was saying was, the, the closer you are to God and to Christ, the, the more the Word is at work in you, the more the Spirit is illumining you, the more you grow, the more you understand your own depravity. And that's one of the seeming paradoxes in our Christian life. The closer I am to Christ, the more my sinfulness becomes illumined and made alive. And that is obviously a challenge for us. But here's what we want. We want to beware when we begin to see and to view our debt as the Pharisee saw his. If that's happening, if you're constantly looking over the fence at other people and you see their sin easily, but yours not so much, beware. Because that is the heart of the Pharisee. The heart of the Pharisee is good at picking out everybody else's stuff. Not so good at seeing his own. When you see your debt up close and personal, the debts of others 
will decrease. You won't be so eager then to look over the fence. You'll see that you have plenty of work to do right there in your own life. So that's the debt that we all owe. Let's do our third point. How about the forgiveness that is free in Christ? You see in this parable, the money lender easily, graciously forgave the debt of the two debtors. And we've already talked about this in other parables. That, and, and all the way through the Gospels, forgiveness is never free. There is always a cost, always a price associated with forgiveness when it's offered. When someone has harmed you and someone has done something to you and you grant them forgiveness, typically you're eating it. Typically it's burdening your heart and it's weighing on you, but you're choosing not to turn it on them. There's a cost associated with that forgiveness that you're extending. Similarly, in the story, the money lender eats the cost. He takes the burden of this situation, of these men owing him money, on himself. And of course, in the gospel, that's exactly what God has done for us. I love the story of Roy Regals. Anybody know the story of Roy Regals? Oh, I saw a Georgia Tech fan raise their hand, but only one of them raised his hand. And it wasn't the one that I challenged this morning. So the story of Roy Regals is this. His name, his nickname is actually Roy Wrong Way Regals from the 1929 Rose Bowl, okay, when Georgia Tech was playing Cal. And so it's the midway through the second quarter, and they're out on the field, and... uh um, let's see, they've got the ball, they've driven down, they're, they're on the, about the 30-yard line, there's a fumble, Roy Weagles picks the ball up for Cal, and he hits a player, one of his own players, and gets disoriented. He turns the opposite direction and runs 69 yards towards his own goal, only to be tackled by um, their quarterback, who was also playing defense on another position at the three-yard line. He, he caught him. He grabbed him at the three-yard line. The Georgia Tech fans clobbered him. He fell, and on the one-yard line, they had the ball. Cal went out into the end zone. They opted to punt the ball out of the end zone. Georgia Tech blocked it, and they were on the board two to nothing. They went into the locker room at halftime. The story is that the locker room was dead quiet as the players all sat around. They could not believe what had just happened. And Coach Price, about three minutes before they were supposed to go out, looked at all of the players and he said, everybody's going back to the same position that they had in the first half. Now get out there. And all of the players bounded out of the locker room, ready to go and make a better second half than they'd had a first half. But Roy Weagles sat on the floor in the locker room. And Coach Price went over to him. And when he looked up at him, his eyes were full of tears. His face was wet from the tears that had been rolling down his cheek. And as he went over and he put his hand on his shoulder, he said, Roy, didn't you hear me? I said, same positions as the first half. Now get out there. 
And Roy looked up and he said, Coach, I can't do it. I've ruined you. I've ruined the university's reputation. I've ruined myself. I can't face that crowd out there. And Coach Price looked at him and said, Roy, get up and go back. The game is only half over. And you listen to that story and you think, wow, it, it, it's, go watch the clip. You'll get it. It's often considered the greatest football blunder in collegiate football history. Who won? Georgia Tech did. Eight to seven. Roy Weagle that day, as he sat there, a complete shame to the institution of Cal, crying in that locker room floor, heard his coach say to him, what? Roy, I'll eat your shame. Get back out there and play the second half. I'll eat your shame for the university. Now go play. He took a lot of heat for that. He went back out on the field. Everybody, nobody has forgotten Roy Weagle's blunder that day. You can bet the fans in the stands, when they saw Roy Weagle get back out on the field that day, were beside themselves at Coach Price. But he ate their grief. That's what happens in the forgiveness that comes to us. It's free, given to us. You can do nothing to earn it. You don't deserve it. And yet it comes to us. On the cross, Jesus took our sin. He took our shame. He took our guilt. And there on that cross, God treated him as if he had actually committed all of your heinous acts and all of your not-so-heinous acts. Allah, the sins of the woman and the sin of the Pharisee. And that brings us to our final point quickly, the response that brings us home. Verse 48, Jesus tells the woman that her sins are forgiven and that it was as a result of her faith in him. But look at verse 47. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven, little loves little. Whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. And that's where you see the key to a great love for the Savior. It's right there. It's not to have yourself all together. It isn't to have everything sewn up. It isn't to be good in your own strength. It isn't to know the vastness of your sin. No, it is. You see... The thing that we think will kill us is the thing that actually brings life to us. Because in that story, what does Jesus say? Many, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. See, she was there willing to lay it all out, to place it all there at his feet. She knew that she had forgiveness. She understood her sin. She was ready to let go and abandon her sin. And that's what it takes. That's the response to know your sin. As you and I know it, it generates a love for the Savior that nothing else will generate. Look, being good, having yourself all together, believing that somehow you can present yourself to God, that isn't what He wants. What He wants is what? 
a broken and contrite heart the Lord will not cast out. A broken heart is the heart he wants, not a put-together heart. And isn't that the core of the gospel? Yes, it's the beginning. It's the first step in Christian AA. I am a sinner. I am. Are you? Jesus says that's where it all begins. That's where that is the key response that brings us all the way home. So let me challenge you this morning. Because I think this is what Jesus is challenging this Pharisee with. Let go of your self-pretense. Let go of having it all together. Because you don't. I do. For you. And when you know, and when you realize what it is you've done, when you know and you realize the depth of your own sin, and yet you're forgiven, then you can nurture the love for the Savior. It would cause you to wipe His feet with your tears and your hair and to pour perfume out on Him. Because He's just that great. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank You this morning for Your Word. We want to thank You for the message that Luke gives to us as he presents to us the story. We want to thank You for a faithful Savior who's brought us all this way. A faithful Savior who's paid the mountain of debt we owe as we could never repay it. A faithful Savior who promises us that that which He's begun, He'll carry on. A faithful Savior that has told us that nothing can separate us from Your love. And so, Father, we need this morning to hear that good news. And Father, I pray that however we're here, whatever character we are, that we'll see and know and taste that Jesus indeed really is that good. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing the first.